And I think we're at a critical juncture in this country. You know, as president of a boat, I wrote a column after George Floyd was killed. And I talked about it being an inflection point to equal justice. And I really think we're at an inflection point in our country where I hope that at some point in time, we can look at ourselves and think about treating people better and treating people and not discriminating against people based on their backgrounds and their race. Hello and welcome to See You in Court, the podcast that informs you about the Georgia civil justice system, what it means to you, and how it protects individual rights. This podcast is a collaboration between the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Your hosts are Robin Frazier-Clark and Lester Tate, who are both past presidents of the State Bar of Georgia and currently serve on the board of directors of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. And now this episode of See You in Court. Good morning, friends and lovers of the law. Welcome to See You in Court. I'm Lester Tate, and with me is Robin Frazier-Clark, my co-host. Robin, how are you today? Hey, Lester, doing great. It's a great day, and on my other monitor, I was watching Vanderbilt and Florida play in the SEC basketball tournament, and unfortunately, Vandy is not doing so well at half. (laughs) Well, I'm watching uh, my alma mater, Georgia Tech. Robin, Robin's a Vandy uh, a Vandy grad. I'm a yep. Georgia Tech grad. And Georgia Tech is trailing uh, Miami, but only by four points uh, with about 30 seconds to go. So we're all uh, with March, uh, uh, March Madness of some type today. Yep. But I want to tell you about our guest because I'm really thrilled to have Luther Batiste of Columbia, South Carolina uh, with us today. Uh, Luther is a founding shareholder of Johnson, Toll, and Batiste. He's a graduate of the University of South Carolina and of Emory Law School and uh, is a trial lawyer there. And he is uh, the immediate past president of the American Board of Trial Advocates, the national president for American Board of Trial Advocates, which is an organization dedicated to the preservation of jury trials. Uh, Robin and I are both members, both proud members. And uh, Luther and I sort of have a special relationship because I'm a Georgia boy, but to get my legal education, I went over to South Carolina. And uh, uh, Luther is a South Carolina guy and came down to Emory, where Robin went to law school, to get his his legal education. And then we both went back to our home states, and it was through Aboda and through just a ton of mutual friends that uh, we have met. And Luther's been a great... uh, uh, friend and mentor uh, to me, got me involved in Aboda stuff. And so I want to tell you a little bit uh, about him because I view Luther as really being a, uh, a pioneer in so many areas. Uh, after going back to South Carolina in 1983, Luther entered the political arena and made history by becoming one of the first two African-Americans elected to the Columbia City Council since Reconstruction. Um, And that's how I first heard of Luther, because I'd heard of him for many years, because I started law school in 1985, so you would have been on the city council uh, then. He served uh, as mayor pro tem uh, of the city of Columbia, and the city of Columbia has dedicated uh, a monument and plaza in his honor uh, as a public service, a public servant. Uh, He's been repeatedly selected for inclusion in the best lawyers in America, and super lawyers, and has been awarded an AV rating by Martindale Hubble, which is the highest uh, rating which Martindale Hubble gives. 
He's a member of ABODA. And like I said, the uh, national uh, president, past national president, and was also president of CIABODA, the Southeastern chapter of American Board of Trial Advocates. He's a member of the John Belton O'Neill Ends of Court, the Southern Trial Lawyers Association, American Association for Justice, the National Bar Association, South Carolina Association for Justice, Injured Workers Advocates, the American Trial Lawyers Association. Uh, and uh, again, I'll come back to the fact that he was the national president for ABODA. For those of you who don't know that, that is a really, really huge deal. And I could go on and on for the remainder of our uh, podcast talking about Luther and, and his many accolades. Uh, but Luther, we want to hear, hear from you uh, today, uh, just a little bit. Welcome, welcome to the show. How are you doing in this COVID-19 uh, era we're living in? I'm doing great, Lester. Thank you and Robin for having me on your great show. I looked at the website and saw all the great people you've had on the show in the past. I'm just honored to be among the number. Well, uh, we're glad to have you. And I want to I want to start by asking you to just tell us a little bit about your career, about why you went into law. And uh, I, I've talked about so many of your firsts. Uh, and I think I, I got to bring sort of two of my heroes together earlier uh, before the COVID thing struck, because uh, we were at an ABOTA event where I had Robert Benham, who's a former justice of the Georgia Supreme Court, first African-American to attend the University of Georgia Law School. And, uh, and you together, you were both there together, and you all have had very similar careers in that you've been true pioneers. So I want you to tell me how you decided to go into law and also, you know, give us some of the background of, of some of the things that you have pioneered uh, as an African-American lawyer. Well, first of all, I, I remember the Aboda event very well, and uh, you spoke before me and had the opportunity, as you said, to introduce your hero. Chief Justice Benham, and you were just brilliant in your introduction. So you put a lot of pressure on me coming behind you. And of course, I used that opportunity uh, to talk about my hero, Judge Matthew Perry, um, who was one of the premier civil rights lawyers in the country and the first African-American uh, federal judge in the, in the Deep South. And he started out college with as my mother's classmate at South Carolina State University, uh, which was then South Carolina State College. And he left to go into uh, World War II and came back and graduated as a part of my dad's college class of 1948. Um, Judge Perry was, um, you know, because of segregation, they created a separate law school at South Carolina State. And Judge Perry was in the first class and when he graduated, South Carolina did not have a bar exam. They had what was known as diploma privilege. So if you graduated from the University of South Carolina Law School, you automatically became a lawyer. Because of discrimination, when Judge Perry graduated, they mm -hmm. instituted a bar exam. So um, Ju Judge Perry was just breaking barriers then, he created a bar exam for all the lawyers in South Carolina who were not very happy about that. And, um, and, and Judge Perry uh, went to Spartanburg and later came to Columbia and became the lawyer for the NAACP in South Carolina and began handling cases um, 
involving people who were involved in protests. He lost all the cases at the trial level and ultimately won uh, thousands of cases at the appellate level, um, making fantastic law in South Carolina and changing um, the course of life in South Carolina for all South Carolinians and making it a better place for all. As a young person growing up in Orangeburg, um, I had a chance to follow the career of Judge Matthew Perry. Um, and because of him, um, you know, I wanted to be a lawyer. He was tall, he was handsome. He had a beautiful voice, a, a, a presence, an elegance. And because of him, I wanted to go to law school and, and be like him. And, um, and so that's why I went to law school. I was involved um, in, in what was called the Orangeburg Movement at the time. I was involved in picketing, um, in marching. My biggest regret during that time period was is that I didn't get arrested like my friends. To be arrested fighting for civil rights was a badge of, badge of honor. And I never, my group never got arrested. And to this day, I regret uh, never being arrested um, for civil rights. And having, being involved in that Orangeburg movement impacted me in so many ways. It helped shape me to be the person that I am and to have a commitment uh, to equal rights um, um, that follows me and carries me and, and energizes me even now. But I've been involved in a, you know, a lot of things. Uh, I was um, started out, I was president of the Columbia Lawyers Association. Then I became uh, president of Richland County Bar Association, first African-American president, president of the South Carolina Trial Lawyers Association, first African-American president. Um, then uh, became president of CIA Boda and then ultimately ABOTA. Um, involved in politics uh, for 15 years. Uh, I ran in an eight person race. The first time I ran, uh, won in a runoff two to one and was never opposed again. And uh, I retired you know, on my own. Um, my, my law partner was one of the first three African-Americans, I.S. Levy Johnson, elected to the Georgia, South Carolina legislature. And uh, he, when he retired, he said he retired because of illness. He said the public got sick of it. <laughs> so, that's great. Uh, I like that's I like great. to think I like to think I retired on my own terms. So that's kind of a little bit of some of the things I've been involved in. I've been involved in. I'm very involved it's, in matters other than law. Also, I'm very interested in the arts and was served as a you know the chair. We're, we're going to talk about we're going to talk about your uh, jazz show here too, okay. and get get you a little plug uh, for that right. in a minute. But when you first started practice, after you got out of law school, right. you clerked, I believe, for uh, for Judge Perry, if I remember correctly. Uh, no, um, let me tell you a little bit about that. Sure. When I was in college, I mentioned my partner, um, I.S. Levy Johnson, being one of the first three African-Americans since Reconstruction. And um, there was an organization in uh, Atlanta, based in Atlanta, the Voter Education Project, and they hired me to work for him. And my, my last year in college, uh, I worked in his law office, assisting him doing his legislative work and then doing and then doing some other stuff, some legal stuff. And when I went to Emory, um, my first year, I worked at the Georgia legislature and I worked with, uh, with uh, Ben Brown and Julian Bond, Sen Senator, later Judge Horace Ward um, at the legislature, doing a very exciting time. 
Um, and I did that. Well, and then I worked, I clerked for Judge Horace Ward, who I think was the first black federal judge. Yes. Uh, in in uh, Atlanta, I mean, in Georgia. You know, it's interesting, Judge Ward um, worked for, for, for attorney uh, Hollowell, who's a, a Georgia legend. And one of the people that clerked for them was Vernon Jordan. I was going to say, I read Vernon Jordan's book, uh, Vernon Can Read, and he talks about working for, for Donald Hollowell, who uh, represented Charlene Hunter Galt and uh, uh, Hamilton Holmes, the first two undergraduates admitted right. at the University of Georgia. And I think Judge Ward and, 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 and Attorney Hollowell were practicing law together at that time, uh, during that time period. I'm convinced that Judge Ward hired me to be his law clerk because he didn't drive. And what he really wanted was a chauffeur, but uh, but, but I, I really got an interesting. Um, we had such wonderful conversations, and he gave me so much background on the experiences he had. He represented Martin Luther King. He had an office on what was then Hunter Street, which is my, now Martin Luther King Drive, and so I, you know, I was right down the street from the original Pascals, and and it was just a wonderful time to be in Atlanta when I was there from from 1971 to 1974. And then I came back to Columbia and uh, started, I went to, came back and went to practice with I.S. Levy Johnson, the person who I um, clerked for in, in, in college. And he and I have been together for 46 years. It's the only job wow. I've ever had. Um, our, our first year into the practice, I'd been there two months and he was 33 years old and had a heart attack. And I had to run the business, um, the law firm, um, while he was gone. And when he was in the hospital, um, a person who later became Chief Justice Jean Toll and her husband, Bill Toll, who was then a law professor at the University of South Carolina, visited him in the hospital. He was um, uh, unhappy with being a law professor and IS invited him to join us. And then we formed Johnson Toll and Baptiste, which was the first law firm integrated at the partner level since Reconstruction. I, at one time, I thought we were the first, and then I was doing some research and saw doing Reconstruction um, that there was an integrated firm in, in Columbia. And so we were very different um, at that time. And uh, it was interesting how, how the firm was named. My partner said, um, the, the logical thing was I was there first, so it, my name would be second. And uh, my partner, I think, thought it would be more powerful having the toll name second. So he told me if my name was last, everybody would remember that more. <laughs> so that's how we formed Johnson Toll and Batiste. And um, so we stayed together. Bill uh, retired about two years ago, um, still is available if we need to do work, but he's really enjoying being a grandparent and a part-time golfer and staying at home. Luther, my uh, connection I have a tiny one to South Carolina. Uh, I clerked in Charleston when I was in law school. So that would have been in 86 and 87. Uh, our, my, my office was at 150 Meeting Street. Um, and back then, I, I'm, I'm just amazed at your firm and your career because wow, it's so, and back in the mid eighties in Charleston, South Carolina, Two summers I spent. I don't think I ever saw an African American lawyer in, wow. in anything I did, anywhere I went. I don't. I don't recall that. Right. So, your story is uh, 
amazing and so impressive and historic. And, you know, you mentioned Judge Ward. Um, I wrote about Judge Ward once and what all you could call it is poetic justice for him to end up on the bench after right. everything he went through. And, yeah. you know, I hear your story about your, your one regret is you didn't get arrested. And I think, man, that, that is, uh, that's justice too, that you've done so much for your community um, and, and, and civil rights. It's um, my hats off to you and God bless you for doing all that. It's amazing to me. Well, you know, when um, you went to Emory also, right? I did. I went to Emory. I graduated in 88. Was Professor Ferguson still there when you were there? Oh, yeah, sure. Yes. Did you, have, did yeah. you take any classes from him? I had, I had my first civil procedure with him, yeah. <laughs> it's really interesting. I went back um, to Emory for one of our, our reunions, and I was at a cocktail party, and he had a glass of wine, and I had a glass of wine. And I, I said, I can't believe I'm standing here with Professor Ferguson. He's not screaming at me. He's talking in a low tone of voice because he was a very intimidating, um, very intimidating teacher when we were there. It, but, uh, it was very intimidating. And I can remember a particular question. So this would be in 1985, that far, but I still remember that's how traumatic it was. But I can remember he asked me what a pleading was. And I, I had to <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, that, that reminds me of a story we had this, a law clerk come in for her first day. And so I invited her to attend the deposition and we were sitting in the room and before the deposition started without talking to me or anything, she just said, I have a question. And uh, she said, what is a deposition? And uh, <laughs> I, I said to her, I said, I don't think I would have asked that question. I don't know but, uh, but you know, You're when I went to, to Emory, out. yeah, when I went to Emory, most of the people in my class, I think, aspired to work in big law firms. And uh, yeah. it was really interesting. Um, my, my, my last year, they passed a rule that you could take the bar exam, I think, at the February testing period. Yeah. And, um, yeah. and I didn't take it, but everybody in my class that took it passed the bar exam. So the majority of my class, when we graduated on June the 6th, 1974, they were ready to be lawyers. And I had to go back and take the bar review course and take the bar exam. Yeah, you know, I, I, I went through, I went through, went summers while I was at South Carolina. So I actually availed myself of that rule to take the bar the summer after my second year, because I was going to graduate in December. And uh, I had a job in Atlanta. I worked for Smith Gambrell and Russell and, uh, I took the bar and I passed it. <clears throat> so I had to go back and graduate. And I thought since I'd gone to law school in South Carolina, I'd take the bar over there, but you couldn't take it till after you'd graduated. And after I'd made it through, there was no way I was going to go back, you know, and start uh, start studying for it. I was, I was already off and running. But yeah. uh, therein, you have the only thing that I was ever first in my class in. I was the first person to become a lawyer. But other than that, I yeah. uh, had no other first. But you know, when I when I um, went to Emory, it was always my intention to come back to South Carolina. Um, the uh, legendary uh, dean of the law school at Howard University was a man named Charles Hamilton Houston, and he believed at that time that 
African-American lawyers had a responsibility to be social engineers, to, to go back in the community and try to make a difference. So even though I went to law school at Emory, it was always my desire to go back to South Carolina and to try to make a difference in the community, try to make it a better place. So if you look at my what I've, I've tried to do in my life, that's what I've been trying to do since I came back. So I'm, I'm uh, privileged to be on a committee that the Georgia Bar has called the Equal Justice Committee. Our president, Don Jones, has set that up. And one of the things that we've been doing is trying to get uh, people of, uh, and not just, not just African-Americans, but people of all races, creeds, and colors and genders to uh, say, you know, to talk about their experience, you know, and to share their experience so that others understand that. So what was it like going back to South Carolina, which still is in many ways a rural state, uh, and uh, as, a, as a young African-American lawyer, um, I mean, I remember when I clerked for our friend Richard Gurgle, you know, when he was practicing law, I went to John's Island one night for a hearing, and I was the only white person in the in the hearing room, I think, for a little while. School board hearing? Yeah, school board hearing. Yes, yeah. I had a constituent board out there. Right. And I remember thinking, like, I'm not the defendant. I'm not really, you know, made nervous, you know, by any of this. But it it gave me a little taste, you know, of what it's like to look around and see a lot of people that aren't like you that right. you need to communicate with and 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 get along with. What was it like when you went back to went back to South Carolina? I, I was very lucky um, <clears throat> when I chose to uh, to go to work with I.S. Levy Johnson. Um, he was a person that was well known in the community. He was an excellent trial lawyer, particularly criminal trial lawyer. And I went everywhere with him. Um, and what happened was that the goodwill that he had developed was transferred to me. Um, it, was an intra, it was an instant entree for me into the legal community and into the community in general. And so that really gave me an advantage. Um, you know, back during that time period, when I first started practicing law, um, you know, you didn't have a, a, a lot of black lawyers, but you, you know, you had some. And, um, and so because of the relationship my partner had, it helped me with the judges. I immediately got active in the Sacramento Trial Lawyers Association. I remember the summer of uh, 1975 going to Hilton Head for annual trial lawyers convention. And I said to myself, I didn't know any place this nice was in was in South Carolina. I mean, you know, Hilton Head back in 1975 <laughs> was a fabulous place. But when you went to the trial lawyers convention, all the judges were there. And so there were not many black lawyers and we were there. We had a presence there. Gave us a, he had been in the le he was in the legislature. They elected the judges from their le legislature. And so you know, I was able to get to know judges all over the state and have his goodwill transferred to me. So I, I was really lucky um, in terms of of having that kind of connection. And it seems like my life has always been that I've been in a situation where I had good connections. And being involved in the trial lawyers was the best thing I ever did. It made it, it made me. Um, made me a player in a sense. People recognized me. Not, not hard to stand out in the crowd. Um, being an African-American in 1975 in a situation that's pretty much all white, 
And uh, so I just, you know, I just utilized that um, and, and, and just got involved um, in bar activities and, and got involved in trying cases and going to court and, and uh, did that pretty much for, for 10 years before I got involved in, uh, in politics or about eight years. And then that changed everything. When you were trying cases starting out and um, in South Carolina, did you did you feel like you were well received by your juries being African-American? Well received is probably not the right word. Um, I think that that probably then um, we could win cases. I think that um, even given the racial attitudes, then I found that juries made a decision based on the facts. Um, when I first started out, I tried a lot of criminal cases. That's primarily what I did. Um, you know, I went to I went to city court every day um, before I went to work, and uh, did cases there. Did cases in magistrates court. Uh, tried cases in circuit court. I got a chance to start out trying cases with with my partner, and every case he tried, I tried. So I was constantly in in court, you know, learning how to how to try cases from the very beginning. Uh, I was really lucky to be able to do that. So one of the things that uh, for ABOTA, this organization that we're all a member of, you know, you have to have tried so many, uh, so many uh, civil cases. Uh, I think it's 10 now for young lawyers who have difficulty getting those, those 10 cases. Uh, I, I'm, I'm a little bit younger than you. I had 50, I know, when I got in uh, to, uh, to ABOTA. Uh, do you believe that there are just fewer cases getting tried, or do you think that there are lawyers that are unwilling to try cases now? Or how do you see uh, that I, part of our profession? I see all of the above. Um, we have a, a a federal judge in South Carolina, Joe Anderson, who's also a an Aboda diplomate. Uh, you know, you have to be unanimously voted into Aboda that way, and he tells a story about two lawyers in the future, old lawyers in rocking chairs and one lawyer says to the other, he says, you know, that was a great opening statement I gave in mediation. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, because, because you know, what's happening now is for whatever reason, cases aren't being tried like they were before. I think we all um, to some extent have become great mediation lawyers and we, we expect cases to resolve it at that point rather than going to a trial. And there are absolutely fewer cases being tried on the civil side now uh, than before. I, I don't know the statistics, but I know in, in South Carolina, the trials are way down. Um, I think there is a certain um, fear that people have actually, ha fear they have of going in the courtroom and trying cases. Um, I know some people like my law partner, is nothing he enjoys more than being in the courtroom. He loves the theater, he loves everything about it, you know, being the center of attention. Um, so uh, I think it is different. Uh, I think one of the things about the criminal side is you had to try a lot of those cases because you didn't have any choice. Right. right. <laughs> that was right. You know, that was the only only option you had, and and I certainly it's tried it's a just lot of it's just scary to me to think about. Uh, you know, you were talking about Robin was talking about. Uh, being asked what is a pleading and you're talking about somebody asked you what's a deposition you know to take uh, judge anderson's uh analogy a bit forward you know is it going to be that long before some lawyer says what's a trial you know exactly. what's, what's a trial exactly <laughs> i i hope 
hope not. Well, Luther, I've tried about trials, and one was a criminal case, and it was a murder case. Wow. Uh, so I can at least say I tried a murder trial to verdict um, and experience. Talk about stress. The most stressful case I ever tried was the only death penalty case I tried. And I, I tried it. For oh, two, gosh. Yeah, I tried it for two weeks. It was in my hometown of Orangeburg. So I stayed with my mom um, the entire time. We had, a you know, the cooling off one day between the uh, between the, uh, the, the actual trial and the penalty phase. And it was interesting. I was so emotionally involved in that case that I was driving back home. And I just broke down and cried because of the enormous responsibility you have when you try a case and the per whether the person lives or dies, you know, is on your shoulders. Um, I was very fortunate um, in that case to, uh, to get a life sentence for my client, but it wasn't without a lot of stress and a lot of hard work um, to do it. it. It made me a better lawyer trying that case. I, I think that's why I did it. I, I sat second chair with a criminal defense attorney and uh, I wanted to experience that. I wanted to see what that was like. Um, and, and I felt like, like I did voir dire, for example, I felt like a lot of the things that I knew how to do really well did, did translate, but um, it's a big difference when it's just mere money on the line versus someone's life. Right. It's interesting. Uh, a boda, South Carolina boda, uh, that you mentioned Wadir, because Sacramento Boda had a, uh, a one-hour seminar yesterday by, by Zoom. And we have very limited Wadir in, in South Carolina. And uh, we had a, a earlier Zoom meeting, and one of our Supreme Court justices kind of urged us to, uh, to pursue that, that there's nothing that prohibits Wadir, but as a matter of practice, the judges have not allowed it. So, uh, so we had a seminar yesterday with three circuit court judges, uh, yeah, three circuit court judges, and we had um, Judge Jerome Abrams, who's an Aboda member from Minneapolis, uh, where they have Wadir, and we talked about it um, yesterday. But the point I was going to make was the only time I really did extensive lawyer direct Wadir was in my death penalty case, and I had to go study to try to learn how to do it because I'd never done it before. Um, we generally in South Carolina are only allowed to submit questions that the judge asked to the jury. Oh, and wow. Very yeah, very limited in what you can ask. And in, in Georgia, we're allowed to do it until stopped by the judge and, and it's pretty wide open. And I I always uh, promote a, a robust voir dire. I think it's the most important part of the trial. Um, and I feel like it's a muscle that if you don't exercise it, you lose it. So I'm 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 very big proponent of a robust quadir. We, we, we had a lawyer, Ken Suggs, who uh, was president of trial lawyers and president of uh, of Atla, now AAJ. And Ken is 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 older than I am and is still actively practicing. And he's tried cases in 20 states and talks about doing voir around the country and how he said he had to learn how to do it and uh, had to do you know, the, the trials sessions, you know, with a, a focus group in order to make sure he learned how to do it right. If you, you know, in my experience, you know, I, I try to have uh, have at least uh, two or three jurors agreeing with my witnesses before they get seated, if I can get away with it, you know, that's the, that's the, that's the way it goes. So l let's talk about a BOTA for just a minute, because uh, you, you've been in it for a long time, you know, 
uh, have reached the pinnacle of a boda there. And again, when we say a boda, it's A-B-O-T-A, American Board of Trial Advocates, which is one of about three or four nationally recognized uh, uh, honorary trial, trial lawyer societies. Tell us a little bit about uh, what it's like, what a boda's mission is and what it's like to be president of a national organization like that uh, that's spread really throughout right. throughout the United States. Well, American Board of Trial Advocates is an organization of more than 7,600 of the best plaintiff and defense lawyers in the country. Um, selection to a BOTA is by invitation only. Uh, when I was a, became a member, you had to have, have at least 20 jury trials, civil jury trials, to verdict now because of the diminishing jury trial situation, uh, it's down to 10 and people struggle to have that. Um, a boda is dedicated to the uh, preservation of the seventh amendment and the right to jury trial. A boda members are expected to be people of, uh, who have uh, high civility standards. And one of the things that a boda tries to do is to uh, continue to teach lawyers uh, through masters and trials and other um, mechanisms, how to be good lawyers. You can't apply to be president. You have to be nominated. It's done by past presidents. They nominate three people each year. And you actually have to run in an election that all 7,600 people are, are um, eligible to vote. And you can't campaign. Um, you have position statements you have to write your position on. And then to some extent, it becomes a beauty contest in some way. Um, I, I feel very fortunate that I won when I did because I won at a time when the country had become very conservative. And I wouldn't have imagined that a person of my background would have been able to win at that time. But I was, you know, I won, became president of Boda, became the first um, African-American president in, in the history of the organization. And so... Uh, it's been a great honor to be president. I unfortunately, uh, most of my most of my year as president was during a pandemic, so I I think I'll forever be known as the pandemic president of a boater. But it's been a wonderful experience for me. So tell us a little bit about some of Aboda's programs that some of our listeners may not know about, like the uh, journalist law school, teachers law school. We right. we have a wide variety of uh, listeners. I hope right. uh, not all of whom are lawyers. Well, Aboda, has, Aboda also has a, a foundation, um, and the foundation is a separate organization, has its own set of programs. And a lot of um, the wonderful uh, programs we have are through the Aboda Foundation. Uh, as I talked about, they do a, master, a master's in trial, and individual chapters of Aboda have mock trials and, and uh bring in the best lawyers in their state and the best lawyers around the country. And in South Carolina, it is very competitive. I mean, there's trash talking that takes place. Um, they really uh, they really try to win the case and they really get together and prepare. And I understand it's that way around the country. Aboda also has a, a teacher's law school um, where um, they actually present programs on the law to teachers in particular states. Um, they're doing a national teacher's law school this year, and the focus of it will be on the, on the issue of social justice. So that should be, be very interesting. There's also a program called uh, Civility Matters, 
Um, this year, um, as president, my wife, Judy and Batiste and I introduced a new program. It's the Civics Education Literacy Program. And the goal was for voter lawyers to go into the schools and read to kids on civics-related books. One of the biggest challenges we have with our young people now is they don't know much about civics, know a lot less than we did when we came along. And the idea was to let them see good lawyers, have good lawyers have a chance to interact direct, directly with the students and to try to educate these young people about civics and the importance of civics. And so the program uh, was somewhat impacted by the pandemic, but we've been able to do videos and been able to, to get programs started all over the country um, in trying to implement the idea that Judy Batiste and I came up with for the Civics Education Literacy Program. So those are some of the programs that ABOTA does all the time um, to try to make a difference in the legal profession. Our, our podcast sponsor is the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and one of their missions is also education in civics of, of school children. Uh, and we have a website, if, if, if ABOTA could use it, fairplay.org, that goes in different schools use that to learn about civics. But, you know, you, you uh, qualified your, your teaching of that saying that young people didn't know much about civics, but I'm not sure it's just young people anymore. It's, it's adults, too, that I think that need a little civics education. You're absolutely <laughs> right. Absolutely right. You know, we uh, our program was geared toward uh, elementary uh, school kids, uh, kids from kindergarten to third grade. I have found from going into schools that those kids are, are so easy to reach, so, so willing to learn, so eager for knowledge. So that's why we've kind of focused the program at that age group. Um, and next yeah. year, the focus of our civics uh, education literacy program will be on social justice. And so we have a whole new set oh, of books that we're developing uh, to, to read to the kids in that area. I want to talk to you a little bit about your jazz radio program, uh, because right. I know because we in Aboda had uh, known of your love of jazz and, and you've got a whole following. We were texting about it uh, this last weekend. It comes on, I think, on Sunday night. So I want you to give it a plug, but I want you to also tell me uh, a little bit about how you got interested in jazz and, uh, and, and how, if at all, it connects with the law. Yeah, well, I'll tell you how it connects with the law. I always say that to be a good jazz musician, you have to know, know how to improvise. And we all know, being trial lawyers in particular, that what we're doing in the courtroom is that we're constantly improvising. We're, we're, we're given a situation, something may be unexpected and we have to, to shift and adapt to the situation we have. So we're like, we're like jazz musicians, we're improvisers. We're always having to, to make changes and to react to a situation. Um, when I grew up in, in, in my hometown of Orangeburg, South Carolina, one of my dad's brothers uh, lived with us for four years. And one of his duties was he had to he had to wax and buff the hardwood floors in our house, and he would put on music um, that my parents had had at the time, and a lot of it was jazz. And I just you know, I just was very interested in it at the time, and just loved music in general. I had a transistor radio that I would listen to stations all over the country. You know, at that time that I was growing up, 
and this this is not jazz, but there was a program uh, called Randy's Record uh, Randy's uh, Record Shop, and it was a DJ named Jr. And you could get in your car in a little town like Orangeburg. The, the channel was so powerful that you could hear it, and they played great music. It was one out of Fort Wayne, Indiana, and so I was into music because of that, and particularly into jazz. And I just over a course of time, bought music, listened to music, read about jazz, and it's been a lifelong education for me. I probably have one of the best jazz book collections of, of anybody. Um, whenever I travel, I'm in uh, bookstores that sell old books and I'm collecting the books from the giants who've written about jazz. And I, I read, uh, Downbeat Magazine, Jazz Is Magazine. I mean, I do everything that I can because I, I just have this unquenchable quest for knowledge about it. In 2013, um, there was a real estate developer, John Baker, who had a had a jazz radio show that he did on a on a really top-notch station in Columbia called the, the Palm. And he developed a debilitating illness that would not have allowed him to continue doing the show. So he picked um, three people of divergent backgrounds um, to take over his show. Uh, one was a, um, a financial advisor uh, for, um, for Smith, is it Smith Barney? I, I can't remember the name, but one of the yeah. top financial companies. Another was a person who worked at a jazz record store and me, and we, um, we rotated doing the show and then the station got sold a couple of times. And it's, you know, the show was just all in transition. It ended up with, with two of us doing the show, uh, a guy named Woody Jones and I that worked at the record store. So then the station got bought by a Christian network. And the first thing that they did was they cut out the jazz show. And uh, so I was re recruited at that time to go to a radio station in my hometown. And so I immediately went from that station and I got my own show and I named it Jazz from the Garden City because my hometown is known as the Garden City. And I did that for a couple of years. And um, the uh, owner and I had a had a had a falling out or he, he fell out with me. <laughs> I think part of the reason was that my show became more popular than his uh, radio station. And he, he didn't like that. So the engineer of my show uh, got his own station. At, at, he became the general manager of a station at Voorhees College. And so we renamed the show World Class Jazz. And we've done it there now for over two years. So all the music that I play on the show is from my personal collection. I make all the selections of the music. And I'd like to tell people that I give them the backstory on the music and the musicians. So I call it world-class jazz with the backstory. And it's really interesting. The show got picked up um, several years ago by an organization called Jazz Boston. And Jazz Boston picked the best jazz stations and shows in the world and ran it through their app. And so my, my show was on that station up until maybe three or four months ago and they ran out of funding and, and shut the app down. But my show is streamed on the internet um, I have people listening all over the country. Um, the show recently, I mean, the station recently got hit by storms. It's a small college station. And 
my friends in Aboda, led by Peter Riley, excellent lawyer from Minneapolis, raised over $20,000 for the station to go in and do all the repairs and upgrade the equipment. And they did that within like 12 hours. And Peter says they did it because of how much they liked the show and how much they liked me, which I just was overwhelmed by. So jazz is a passion for me. I love doing the show. I think, and I'm not bragging here, but I think my show is as good as any jazz show in the country. And I'm on every Sunday from six to eight on WBCD 96.5 FM, 790 AM. And you can just go to the Voorhees website and listen, or you can email me at bat, B-A-T, at jtbpa.com. I will send you a playlist and a link each Friday to the show. So if you like good jazz, you need to listen to world-class jazz. That's very that's very cool, Luther. It, it, if, if we said this is Luther's walk-up song, you know, how they have in Major League Baseball walk-up song, what, what would be walk-up song in jazz for Luther Batiste? It, would, it could be Miles Davis, All Blue. It could be the actual um, lead-in to my show now, Moaning by Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers. It could, it could be a couple of songs. When I became president of a boater, and I walked up to the mic and I said, I want you to know that I'm the first president ever to host his own, a voter ever to host his own jazz show. People thought I was gonna say something else. <laughs> One of the things I do to have fun with my show is that I do what I call a smooth music set. And I like to say that I, the music I feature is not necessarily jazz. It may have a jazzy sensibility, or it may be an iconic artist, or it may be some good old school music. Uh, last week I did Earth, Wind & Fire, and this week I'm doing Whitney Houston. I do three songs just to change it up a little bit, and it's become a very popular feature of my show. Oh, well, uh, I love both of them. I, lo I love smooth jazz. I would call it smooth jazz, but um, you mentioned Earth, Wind & Fire. A year ago, we, we were getting ready to go on a trip to Las Vegas to see Earth, Wind & Fire, and, you know, of course, everything got shut down, so... I still haven't seen Earth, Wind, and Fire, and I'm still waiting to, you know, be able to do that. Do you play an instrument? I do not. I do not. You play okay. the radio, though. Yeah. That's the <laughs> I don't play an instrument. I don't play an instrument, but I know good music when I hear it. I noticed that you and Judy, your wife, are also instrumental, no pun intended, in bringing jazz to Columbia. Yeah, mostly Judy. You know, I met my wife at Emory. Uh, she was at Emory undergrad when I was in, in law school. And uh, we graduated um, same time and got married a week after I took the bar exam uh, in, on August 10th. And Judy um, has been very involved in the arts in Columbia, uh, has received numerous awards for what she's done in arts. And one of the things that she's done, and she's done it at two venues, is that she's uh, put together jazz concerts. We have a Performing Arts Center, which is actually right next to my office called the Township Auditorium. And she came up with a concept to do uh, jazz in the lobby. And she created a jazz series there um, where after work, they would do jazz in the lobby. And, uh, and so then she was recruited to do it at a different venue. And she, did a, she does a program called Jazz at 701 Whaley. And it features uh, local and sometimes uh, national artists 
and uh, and jazz is offered at a very reasonable price in a wonderful historic venue, and it's just great music. And it's become one of the jazz events in Columbia now, and it's all because of the talent that my wife has at promotion and marketing and picking up and coming good artists. And so my wife is very, 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 very talented um, in everything that she does and was very creative in, in work she did for Aboda. Unfortunately, we only got to do two trips this year because of the pandemic. We did one in Charleston and Lester, you were there. Uh, for yes. that. And we, we took an international trip to Tanzania and Zanzibar. Ironically, one day a year ago today was the day we were flying back to the United States from Zanzibar. And we little did we know how much the world would change at that time, how much our lives would change and how much my year as president of Aboda would change. We got back on March the 12th and so many things happened on March the 12th uh, to change this country. So it's ironic we're doing the show now. We, I remember being in Amsterdam on March the 12th and the word that we received was that there would be an international travel ban and you couldn't enter the country. And so our plane was, I was sitting on the plane to go to Atlanta and I said, please let this plane leave. I was so worried. <laughs> and we, we got back to Atlanta. No one was wearing masks at that point in time. There was nothing different that day, um, that day, but everything changed in a few days after that. So I quickly want to touch on the issue. You've talked about all the change that's gone on. COVID's been one of the things that's gone on. Also, the Black Lives Matter protests have gone on. And as we sit here today, we're starting to deal with the, some of the aftermaths of some of the things that have gone on. We're getting vaccinations for uh, COVID. And uh, in fact, the George Floyd trial is in jury selection. Apparently, they do... Uh, do allow Voidir in, uh, in Minnesota, where that's uh, taking place. How do you see, uh, or do you see that uh, our justice system has been uh, changed by the Black Lives Matter movement? After George Floyd was killed, and we had the outpouring of concern and support in, of, of the Black Lives Matter movement, I had a lot of hope at that time. I thought that um, our country was progressing to a point that I didn't think we would get to. That hope that I have now because of that has been followed by despair because I think that now it's clear that our country is more divided than any time that I can remember since the days when I was involved in civil rights as a young person growing up in Orangeburg. Um, this is a very scary time in, from my perception that there's just so much hate and people are so open with it. Um, when, you know, after reconstruction, you had an uh, institutionalized effort to take away the rights of African-Americans, their voting rights, their civil rights. And what I see in legislatures all over the country now with voting is I see a return to those post-reconstruction policies. It really makes me sad to see where we are right now, to see the open hate that, that I see in this country now. I was in a mediation Monday and I was saying to the lawyers on my side of the case that I really worry about what's gonna happen with jury trials. 
I said, first of all, in a civil case, we have people whose economic situation has been so affected by the pandemic. How will they look? How will they award damages now in, in that regard? We have a country that's so full of hate and people are so open about it. How will a jury trial take place and how will, how will people of color be affected by juries now? And I, I'm, I'm frightened about that prospect. I really am. I, I really hope that at some point in time, this country will be able to engage in some healing and, uh, and get away from looking at people differently and judging people based on the color of their skin or, or their economic background. And I think we're at a critical juncture in this, in this country. You know, as president of a boat, I wrote a, a column after George Floyd was killed and I talked about it being an inflection point to equal justice. And I really think we're at an inflection point in our country where I hope that at some point in time, we can look at ourselves and, and think about treating people better and treating people and not discriminating people against people based on, on their backgrounds and their race. And I think that, that we're at a bad place right now a really bad place that I'm not sure will change in my lifetime. I, I agree with you, Luther. And we had a couple of cases here in Georgia that we're dealing with um, that I, I think, I think Ahmaud Arbery happened after George Floyd, but I don't know if you followed Ahmaud, Ahmaud Arbery, the, yes. the shooting, what I would say was the murder of Ahmaud Arbery by yeah. two white men. Um, who it, I don't even want to get into it. It's just so awful what they did to him. They killed him in cold blood. Um, and then we also have Rayshard Brooks, which is a police shooting of an African-American here right. in, in downtown Atlanta. Um, and Ahmaud Arbery is going to be, that trial's going to be tried before the end of the year. I don't know about Rayshard Brooks, but um, I'm praying that the jury in, in the Ahmaud Arbery trial, um, it's really State v. McMichael, does the right thing um, because we've now changed. We've now eliminate our legislator legislature eliminated the citizens arrest law just recently. Thank goodness. A and, unanimous vote too, by the way, and, in the house. and passed a hate crimes bill in Georgia, which I thought I'd never see, right. but thank, but it's a that's a big step for right. us. You know, Robin, um, I, I remember a, a few years back watching a program that used to come on ESPN. It was called the Sports Reporters. It was a very intelligent discussion that took place on Sunday with some of the best sports writers in, in the country. And there was a man, William Roden from the New York Times. And he said, he talked about the issue of race in this country. And you, you two are probably too young to remember this, but when I was at Emory, I had a turntable and a receiver and I listened to my music that way. And, and William Roden said that when you had that stereo setup even when you turned off all the power, there was a hum, there was a hum there. And he says, that's the, the issue of race is a hum that's always there. And we just can't get past that. We can't get past it. Well, Luther, Lester and I both have uh, adult children. Um, Lester's kids are a couple of years older than my kids, but they're in the same generation and they are all like-minded. They, they don't, they, they cannot believe that, that 
the way we treat people. We cannot, they cannot believe we still have racism in America. It's just unbelievable to them. Um, un, just inside my, I guess what I'm saying is my hope is in this generation that they have to have an entire generation of kids like Lester's kids and my kids saying, we're not doing, we're not putting up with this, not one more day, period. Right. Well, so there's hope, but it's there's it's a, a saying as, as yeah, there's a saying as I breathe, I hope. So I I have to have hope that we can be better. I have to have hope. That's the uh, South Carolina motto, as I recall. Yeah. Uh, G- Georgia's wisdom, justice, and moderation is cer- certainly something uh, we need to live up to a little more uh, yeah. here. You know, I, I found as president of Aboda, um, when when it came to doing resolutions, taking a stand, we were really affected by the the divide in this country. And if you took a position that affected a statement, maybe a politician, a popular politician that may, and if you took a position protecting the rule of law or, or the independence of judges, if it involved well-known politicians, it was perceived as being political rather than taking a legal stand. And so it made for, for a very difficult, difficult year. One of the things that I said was, as president, I would not be partisan in, in what I did. You know, I would avoid politics when possible and would never be partisan. So I tried to, tried to adhere to that during the year I was president, but it was a challenge. Well, it's, uh, you know, and some of that is uh, what Martin Luther King spoke of when he talked about the silence of our friends, you know, um, uh, to not to not speak up in the in the face of some of the things that we see today to me is just uh, yeah, just wrong. You know, the, the, the silence is wrong. Right. About that. Well, a uh, couple I'm, I'm, I'm going to ask this. Robin had some great questions on here, so I'm going to ask you some some quick questions to try to finish it out before we get to our favorite question, which we've warned you about, which is what is, what is justice? But uh, what would you say is the highlight of your career? Well, I, w- I would say I have two highlights. Um, the, the obvious highlight was, you know, being elected president of Avoda and having the chance to lead a, a prestigious organization of 7,600 lawyers doing one of its most challenging years during a pandemic. You know, we had a chance to to adapt to that, to do the first two virtual meetings, uh, to do some great seminars. To co- I appointed a COVID-19 task force, which gave lawyers and courts a, a blueprint around the country about how to conduct jury trials in a pandemic environment. My other um, high moment is, is, is I, I was asked by Judge Perry, he left instructions for me to speak at his funeral. Um, he was my hero. I think one of the greatest lawyers of our time. The other people on the panel were Congressman Jim Clyburn, the Chief Justice of the South Carolina Supreme Court, two federal judges, and me. And um, to be selected to speak at his funeral, you know, not being of the standards and caliber of those people was was just a high point. His funeral was broadcast on, on South Carolina Public Television. And I just, that was just an honor for me because I, I loved him. He was my mentor. He was my friend. You know, I, I got to take him to football games. Um, 
you know, he's just a rock star. And that was high point for me. Best win. Best win was, was not an obvious type of case. Um, I, I represented a family um, of a man who had a $35 Gulf oil bill he didn't pay. And they got a judgment against him and took about 20 acres of his parents' family land. South Carolina, uh, the Gulf oil was represented by a man named Marion Gresson, who was the senator head of the Senate in his hometown of St. Matthews, South Carolina. And I went to court, got that reversed, and got the family their land back. I beat Marion Gresset in his hometown. That's great. That's great. It wasn't a case that I got a big fee, but I got the greatest set. I bet you didn't get paid much on that case. Yeah, <laughs> but I, I, I value that case so much because I saw the system taking advantage of him and taking advantage of his family and stealing his family's land. And I got his land back, the family land back. Do you have a, uh, you know, Robin and I, uh, have, we, we, we're big bourbon fans. In fact, we, we were both president of Georgia bar. We did a little, uh, mix your own cocktail, uh, thing at one point in time, uh, about how to make a bourbon and ginger ale. So that's, that's sort of been our ritual. If we have a good, uh, have a good win. Do you have a ritual, uh, that you follow after a big, after a big win? Um, I like to, uh, I like, single malt scotch. Uh, I, I, I like to have a, a, a to drink some single malt scotch and have a great meal. Um, and when I have a big win. Well, Luther, I, I can't tell you how I've just really enjoyed this, uh, today. It's just been uh, wonderful to have you on. And, uh, I think as you and I've talked before, uh, with your connection to Georgia and mine to South Carolina and, Robin's got a little South Carolina connection uh, there as well. Little, little. It's uh, it's just uh, it's 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 so great. I feel like all the 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 worlds have merged here. Let me say something before you ask ask him our final question, Luther. You you mentioned many times your mentor, Judge Perry, but I just want to say I can only guess how many young people and young lawyers, especially, have Luther Baptiste as their mentor. Uh, and, and, who, and who they look up You're to. You're very kind. You know, so, I, I didn't mention, oh, thank you. I didn't mention this. Um, let me mention one last thing about Judge Perry. When I left Emory Law School, came back to Columbia, and went to practice with I.S. Levy Johnson, the offices that I worked at were formerly the offices, uh, offices of Jenkins, Perry, and Pride. My first office was Judge Perry's former office in his law offices. I, I My first office was Judge Perry's office. Can you imagine that connection? That's incredible. Yeah. That's incredible. Well, Luther, tell us what, how do you define justice? What is justice to you? Well, ju justice means a lot to me. Um, first of all, I, I define justice as mean, meaning treating people the way they should be treated. I also look at it as fairness. Justice has a particular meaning to me because I grew up in a small town, Orangeburg, South Carolina, that was segregated. And I fought so hard through the civil rights movement to achieve justice. First of all, for African-Americans, when you achieve justice 
for African-Americans, you achieve justice for everyone. Because in order for us to be a better state, a better city, a better country, we all have to treat each other fairly. We all have to try to achieve justice in how we treat people. I wanted to be a lawyer because as I said, Matthew Perry was fighting for justice to free all Americans. And I've spent my entire life trying to make a difference, trying to make Columbia and South Carolina and this country a better place in any way I can by trying to make people do what's right and treat people fairly and to try to make us live up to the ideals of what this country was founded on. And that's my, my sense of justice. Thank you so much for being with us today, Luther. We really appreciate it. Robin and I always uh, try to have a news article that we bring to the attention of our uh, of our listeners uh, each week. And so, Robin, since you made me be the be the leadoff hitter uh, today, I, I I'm going to let you be the leadoff on the on your news article for today. All right. Well, thank you, Lester. It's actually not a news article for me. Sometimes I want to talk about a a significant case and and I want to talk about what I think is a significant case that um, the the Georgia Supreme Court issued just in the last few weeks. Uh, And without any fanfare, and you may have missed it, but it's uh, called Knuckles v. State. And it had to do with a video camera secretly placed in a resident of a long-term care facility's home in, in, a, in a room, the resident's room. And <clears throat> typically what happens in that situation is a family member starts to suspect there's been some sort of abuse to their family member. So they smartly put in a secret uh, camera and it can be any kind of camera, like, like a ring camera that you have on your door or something like that, but they put it in there they don't tell the caregivers they've, they're filming what's going on. And this happened in this case, uh, and the caregiver uh, was brought up on, on some charges, some criminal charges, uh, because the son suspected abuse, placed a secret camera in his father's room, takes it to the police, and this caregiver is charged with some criminal violations. The, the attorneys for the the caregiver then argue that the video from the secret cam- camera should not be admissible uh, because they didn't own that uh, room. It wasn't their home and they didn't have any right to put a camera in this person's workplace. Um, up until this case, it was questionable whether that was legal, putting a, a secret camera in a resident's room in a long-term care facility. Uh, and uh, it, it was questionable whether you could do that. And this case, Knuckles v. State, dealing with the criminal aspect, said it is admissible. The video was going to be admissible. The caregiver had no right of privacy uh, in this person's home while she's caring for him in the, the room. It's not, not his home, in his room in a long-term care facility, that she didn't have a right of privacy. And number two, the resident... Uh, was going to be considered the occupier of of the premises. And for those reasons, the, the videotape was ruled admissible. So I think this has some long, uh, long reach 
uh, going into civil cases. This was a criminal case, but I think it's going to be, be able to be applied in civil cases, such as nursing home malpractice or any kind of situation where you have a case against a long-term care facility where you suspect abuse of your loved one, it now will be admissible evidence when you record that abuse without the abuser's knowledge, without the caregiver's knowledge. Uh, it's, it's perfectly legal and okay for a family member to do that. So I blogged about that in my blog, which you can find at atlantainjurylawyerblog.com or on my website, uh, gatriallawyers.net. I blogged about it a little bit more um, more at length. And I think the larger picture is everything, just assume everything's videotaped these days. Everybody has a camera. We're walking around with one in our pocket or our purse. Um, we talked about Ahmaud Arbery's murder earlier in this show. And the truth of it is no one would, have, would be held responsible for the murder of Ahmaud Arbery unless there was a videotape of it. That's the bottom line. Uh, and same with caregivers in long-term care facilities. No one's going to be held responsible unless you can prove it with video. And now this Knuckles case is a great step forward for family members of residents. Absolutely. And we'll give people some peace of mind, too, about yes. what's, what's going on uh, with, with their, uh, with their uh, loved ones. <clears throat> well, my article today, Robin, is from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution from February the 19th of 2021, written by Bill Rankin, and it's essentially the obituary of uh, my friend and mentor, uh, Bobby Lee Cook, who passed away at the age of 94, only about a week, I think it was a week to the day after his 94th birthday. Uh, you know, to say the name Bobby Lee Cook, uh, for most Georgians, you know uh, exactly who we're talking about. If you're in the minority and don't know who he was, he was uh, reputed to be the model for the TV show Matlock. He practiced law in Somerville, Georgia for well over 50 years, uh, practiced with his daughter and with his grandson, uh, Sutton Conley. Uh, he was a true friend and a true uh, mentor to me. I think uh, one of the things that uh, uh, is his legacy, at least as far as I'm concerned, is that, uh, you know, we hear a lot about great lawyers in New York City and uh, uh, big cities like Atlanta, where you are, but there are a lot of people that think you can't really be a great lawyer and be out in a small town. And he had an international law practice. Uh, he had tried cases in many, many states, had tried uh, court martials in Vietnam and Germany, uh, had just an extraordinary career. And one of the things that I think uh, uh, that I admire the most about him, you know, a lot of people you'll say, well, so and so passed away, and he was, he was the governor, or you know, she was uh, a justice on the Supreme Court, or uh, he served in Congress, or something like that. They're known by some position, you know, that they had. And the thing that Bobby Lee Cook was really known was for what he actually accomplished in the courtroom. He tried over three hundred, uh, uh, three hundred murder trials, uh, and uh, was just an extraordinary lawyer. Went to your alma mater, Vanderbilt. Uh, law school and uh, his passing, uh, while uh, certainly sad, uh, also is something that you have to celebrate for somebody that's had the remarkable life that he had. And of course, we've talked about maybe having some of the family and friends on uh, later to uh, commemorate that life, but I thought it was worthy of inclusion today uh, as, as my article. 
Uh, anything else for the good of the order uh, before we sign off uh, today, I, Robin? I would just like to say that Bobby Lee was one of a kind. And no, I have nothing else. So until next time, we'll see you in court. Thank you for listening to See You in Court, brought to you by the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Please subscribe to this podcast and consider writing a review. You may find related documents to this week's episode on our website, cuincourt.podbean.com. Please send any questions, suggestions, or ideas to cuincourtpodcast at gmail.com. The producer of this podcast is Raz Misher. We thank Noreen Hassan, Associate Professor and Director of Outreach and Community Engagement of the Georgia Institute of Technology School of Literature, Media, and Communication, and the Georgia Tech students who help bring you this podcast. I'm Fred Smith, Executive Director of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. You may learn more about the foundation at fairplay.org. On behalf of Robin Fraser clark and Lester Tate, Until our next episode, we'll see you in court.